Well, I got a question. What makes a Christian? Maybe some of you were born and raised in church. You know, you grew up that way. Some of you weren't. You you came um, later. So, what makes a church? What really makes a a group of of Christians? If you if you meet in the same building and wear similar clothes and and uh, sing the same songs like we just sang and participate in in activities together, is that what defines a church? Can can you spot a Christian? Just by looking. If you're walking out on the streets, can you, can you point out the Christians and the non-Christians? What does a Christian look like? How do they talk? How do they act? How do they walk? Is there, can you tell? If you see somebody smoking a cigarette, could they be a Christian? If you see somebody drinking a beer, could they be a Christian? I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, in, in America... Like it, well, it depends on what church you go to, but in some churches, any kind of alcohol, completely taboo. You go to Europe, it doesn't matter. Everybody drinks. It's just part of the culture. And there are Christians in both places. So I, maybe it's a cultural thing in, in, that, in that sense. How about tattoos? If you see somebody with a tattoo, can they be a Christian? I mean, and, and this kind of stuff can, it's interesting, this kind of stuff can vary greatly just from church to church. Like from this church to the church down the road, the, like I've got a suit and tie on. And in some churches, that's not, nobody wears a suit and tie. You see, t shirts and jeans are the norms. And there are very different kinds of music and musical instruments used in churches in the same neighborhood. If you go to church in Hawaii and you wear a suit and tie, everybody's going to look at you like, what's wrong with you? Because they wear, you know, a, a stand. Maybe not the flowers all over, but they wear that kind of a you know loose shirt and and slacks. Sometimes shorts. They might have shirts on the beach and and wear shorts and sandals and and uh, for special occasions they'll put on a flower lay instead of a tie. And what about other parts in the world? India, Africa, the, the South American jungle. What do they look like? Can you tell a Christian by looking at them? Do you do you have to look like the group in order to be a part of? The church. I mean, if somebody walked in here and didn't look anything like all of you guys are all nice and clean and spiffy looking, and if they were dirty and disheveled and uh, you know, maybe not dressed the way you might consider appropriate for the church, the, the skirt is too short, short, or the hair is too messy, or or unkempt, or their kids are too obnoxious. I worry about that sometimes, and uh, <laughs> and and they didn't fit in with what. You know, we looked like or acted like, and you know, maybe they didn't smell the greatest, or or would that person feel welcome regardless of what their appearance was like if they walked in this group? If, would they be attracted to worshiping God with us regardless of their their traditions, what they were used to, or maybe they are brand new and didn't have any traditions and don't know what it's like? Would they be ministered to here? When you see people like that in public. You know, that, that don't fit what you're used to, however your, your style is. How do you react inside? Like the dirty, messed up, you know, smelly, whatever. Do you, do you give them a wide berth? Like the, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And the priest walked to the other side of the road, and the Samaritan came along and, and helped the, the guy who was beaten up and bloodied. Or are you open to coming near to them? Sharing the good news to, to 
the people who are outside of your, your norm? How did, how did Jesus feel about the outsiders of society? He loved them, right? But does Jesus hate you know, the rich and powerful? He was always talking bad about the, the religious leaders and Pharisees and what. But does Jesus not like Pharisees and religious leaders? No, of course not. He loves them too. Jesus loves the one or one percenters just as he as much as he loves the homeless people. He 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 loves everybody. And if you pay attention, you actually you see Jesus reaching out to everybody. Anybody who will listen, doesn't matter what their background was, if they're rich or poor or healthy or sick or powerful or weak, Jesus tried to take the message of the gospel to every kind of person. He wants everybody to believe and follow him and and come and live his kind of life. And last time we saw uh in Matthew, we were 2 weeks ago, we we saw Jesus forgive the paralyzed man, which upset the re- the religious leaders, the the teachers of the law. They saw that as blasphemy because here's Jesus doing what only God can do. People can't forgive sins. That's God's job. But then he healed the man's legs and said, "Take up your mat and walk home." And which the guy did, which shocked the whole crowd, because here's the paralyzed guy who's now walking home carrying his bedroll, and Jesus is teaching things and doing things with the authority of God Himself, which is just kind of shaking everybody up. And people were worshiping God because of the miracle that they saw, and and they were amazed, and and crowds were following Jesus because of the power and the authority that he displayed in his teachings and his miracles. And, and, and of course, this doesn't sit well with the religious leaders, the people who are kind of the top of the political system in the, in the, in the church, in the Jewish um, the temple. And they paid good money to Rome. The, they had a deal. The Jewish leadership had a deal with Rome that we'll kind of give you a cut of our profits if you'll allow us to kind of keep our power and, and run our, you know, we'll, we'll just, handle the religious stuff and we'll kind of be in charge that way even though you guys are our conquerors basically and so Rome agreed they said you are right, you keep the money coming and we'll let you kind of run your show the way you like to and so they're paying for the privilege of being in power and here comes Jesus not paying anybody and all these people are flocking to him which makes the people who are supposedly in power angry and by drawing these crowds to himself in what he's teaching and what he's doing, Jesus became a threat to the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders. And so they were not happy with Jesus. They were angry about him claiming the authority of God and, and, and how many people were, were flocking to him. And in our reading for today about the Matthew, it's, they're going to get even more upset when they see the kind of people that Jesus is hanging out with. A few chapters ago, he talked about the meek and the poor in spirit and the sorrowful and how the kingdom of God was for these people. And he's not, and now he's, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And he's, he's talking to all the wrong people. And the, the religious leadership is like, no, that's, you talk to us. We're the ones in power. And, and all these other riffraff that Jesus is going to are not the kind of people that you should be seen with in public. The tax collectors and the, it doesn't tell us what kind of sinners, but you can kind of assume the, the kind of sinners that were hanging out in, in with Matthew. And so this was scandalous. I mean, this is, this is not, you don't, 
you don't go hang out with these people, not in public at least. And it reminds me of the story of uh, the, the lady in a small town, we'll call her Maud, and she was sure to keep everyone else in her town informed on the goings-on of her neighbors. And so Sam's pickup truck happened to be parked outside the tavern one night, and so the next day everybody knew about it, what Sam had been doing. And so that night Sam parked his pickup truck in front of Maud's house and walked home and then went back and picked it up in the morning and let everybody talk about that story. So Jesus was not hanging out with the right crowd. He was, you know, and everybody was talking. He was not hanging out with the right kind of people. And it, at least that's the way the religious leaders saw it. That was their, their, their view. But how does Jesus see it? When he looks at these people, some of you have told me about family reunions that you've gone to and the, you, know, you travel to and, and have lots of fun activities and meet people that you've maybe met before or new family members you've never met. Who gets invited to that kind of to a family reunion? The relatives. Well, either your blood relative or you're married into the family and those people all gather together and, and they're kind of part of this, this circle of, of family and they celebrate that and they do fun activities and get to, to meet people and, and make those connections. And anybody who's not a family member is basically left out. Not a bad thing, but that's, just, that's how you define your group. You identify your family, your blood relatives, or you're married, you're part of this family group. And, and it's similar with a, like a company Christmas party. When your company throws a Christmas party, it's for the employees of that company. And the, and the people who work for other companies aren't invited. And so there's this defined group. And you're either inside the circle or you're outside the circle. And there's this definition that, that, that that's, you identify with the group or you identify as being outside the group. And, and that's not a good thing or a bad thing. That's just how we look at it. And we kind of do the same thing with the church. When we look at a lot of times at a church... It's a group of people. And maybe you were born into, you know, you were raised in a certain church or maybe you, you became part of the group later. But there's kind of a typical thing that happens that, you know, you, at some point you, you, you have these, realize that, you know, you've got certain moral behaviors that aren't good and so you have this change of mind and you say a prayer. And so now you kind of are included in this group. And you start following the local customs of this group. And there's different, like we talked about, there's, diff, there's just churches different from the church down the street. There are traditions or music or whatever. But whatever church you're a part of, you usually tend to kind of absorb those tendencies. So you sing that music and you wear those clothes and you, you act and you talk and you're similar to your group. And that's how you identify your church by your customs and traditions and behaviors and sort of thing. So the people who show up and act in the same way, uh, you know, they're, they're here every, every week or whatever, they, they identify themselves as part of that group. And, and because of those, those similarities that they share, what they, what they how, you know, even how they think, or maybe certain doctrines. And, whereas everybody else is basically on the outside. They're not a part of the church. And you've got that sort of defined group. You're either in the circle or you're not in the circle. And these local gatherings can become very exclusive at times, depending on how you dress or what kind of music you, you sing or how your hair looks or if you have tattoos or certain political viewpoints or you know, if you drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do. You know, there's lots of things that people will 
define themselves as the church. And if you don't fit into that group of tendencies, you might be kind of excluded or frowned upon or, or not feel welcome sort of thing. You're either in the circle or out of the circle. And so the, the question, I guess, is what does Jesus think about that? Do you think Jesus cares one way or the other if I have a tie on? No, absolutely not. I mean, if he does, then I'm, I'm either I'm earning bonus heaven points today or I'm in trouble because Jesus himself never wore a tie. And so the Hawaiians are earning the bonus points. But I don't think Jesus cares about any of that. And, and, and I mean, we, and, but people can make a big deal over these things. And, and we can make a big deal over the clothes we wear or the color of the carpet sometimes. Or, you know, it's, it's amazing what some churches have, have argued and broken up over that have nothing to do with Scripture. And, and it's not the way that Jesus thinks about people. What matters to him is not the traditions you practice, but the direction that you're moving. Uh, are, you, are you moving towards Jesus or are you not? And that's really what, what matters. And instead of defining your group the way we would, like a family reunion or a, or a company Christmas party and looking for certain, those kind of connections and, and customs and traditions that we share, Jesus was saying that the people of God are not defined by any of that. The people of God are defined by the direction of their life in relation to God. And that's all that matters. And, and you could think of it more like, like a pursuit of excellence in a, in a skill or a trade or something. Like marksmanship, I think, is a good one. You can, you can categorize people into groups of gun owners and non-gun owners. Or even into pro-gun or anti-gun, whether or not they own a gun, like the, based on how they, they think about that. And there's a difference between a person who, who might own or like guns and someone who has a desire to shoot well. Like if you're a hunter or a police officer or some, a soldier, or if you're just somebody who loves to go out and shoot targets. You, you go to the range and you practice, sometimes daily or weekly or monthly or whatever you've got time or money to do, because you want to be good at it. You want to excel at, at the skill. And so you're moving in the direction of improving your ability. And maybe you're brand new or maybe you've been doing it for decades. There, there are lots of people who take part in, in shooting competitions from, you know, it might be from your local gun range or people in the, the Olympics on a worldwide stage who, are, who have been practicing and practicing and they want to get better and better. And, and some people have honed their skills for, for years and years and years and some people are brand new. But that thing that defines them is the desire to learn and to improve. And so they practice and they practice some more and they never stop practicing. Not just so that they can get really good at hitting a target, but because they like to do what they do. And, and maybe, I don't know how many people are shooters in here, but another way to think of it is music. How many people have ever played an instrument? When you're, maybe when you're a kid or whatever, a handful of you. How many of you have ever sung before? Hopefully everybody has raised their hand because we were just singing songs together. We've all done music. We've all, you know, sing songs and maybe some of us are better than others, which is totally fine. But how many of you would call yourself a musician 
You know, maybe you played an instrument growing up or practiced piano or trombone or violin or whatever and then you gave it up and you wouldn't consider yourself a musician even though you've trained some. But then some of you who who don't play an instrument, you're, you sing in the choir or something, you think of yourself as a musician. We've all done something musical, but we wouldn't all consider ourselves as musicians. So what's the difference between a musician and everybody else? You can be an amateur musician. You don't have to get paid for it. Or you can be a professional musician who, who puts on shows. You can be an expert. Or you can be a novice musician. It's not your, necessarily your skill level. You can be a good musician or you can be a bad one who doesn't have a very good ear. You, you can be taking lessons or you can be teaching lessons. So you might be a student or you might be progressed a long way. Right? You can perform in a music hall. You might perform on TV or make records or, or something. Or, or you might perform on a city street. Or you might perform all alone in your bedroom for nobody. It, what makes a musician? It's the love of it. It's that, it's that desire inside a person who wants to develop and, and learn and practice their skill, who wants to improve, who's always looking to, to learn a little bit more and get a little bit better. And, and it's that motion towards music that makes the musician. So being a musician has absolutely nothing to do with what you look like or, or who you hang out with or your job or your family, or musical traditions, or what style you play, or what instrument you play, or anything like that. It's that inner desire to never stop making music. That, that something inside that drives a person to keep on playing or singing or whatever it is that they do. To always be moving towards the music. So now I'll ask it again. What makes a Christian? What makes a church? The way Jesus saw it, has nothing to do with what group you belong to or, or what you had accomplished or not. or It's not your social level. It's not your Bible knowledge or how you dress or what songs you sing. It's that love for Jesus. It's that inside desire to move closer in relationship to God and to never stop moving closer, to continue learning and, and growing and practicing and, and, and doing the discipleship kind of stuff. Do you want to be closer to Christ or do you not want Him to be a part of your life? That's what makes the difference. Are you moving towards God or away from God? That's the key question. So Jesus can look at a tax collector or a Roman soldier or a prostitute or a blind beggar, rich or poor, man or woman, free or slave, and instead of focusing on their social status or what they look like or, or anything that ever happened in their past and, or you know, how sinful their life might have been, what matters to Jesus is does this person believe in me or not? Does this person desire a relationship? Does this person want to be closer to God? It, and it, it doesn't matter if they've been a believer for decades or if, if it's a brand new change of heart that's now drawing them it, at this very moment that's, that's making that change, what matters is the motion. Which way are they headed? And, and are they moving closer to Jesus or farther away? And so in Matthew, in our Scripture, it says as, as Jesus went on from there, from where He had healed the, the paralyzed guy, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Follow Me, He said to him, 
And he got up and he followed him. So who is this guy? Well, he's the author of the book we're reading. And, but he's also, if you think about him, if you know the history of the tax people in, in Jerusalem, he is the last person anyone else would be asking to join their group. It, it's bad enough to be a tax man. I mean, nobody likes the IRS because they want to take your money. And, and I'm guessing, you know, <laughs> I always think, you know, if an IRS agent goes to a party, do they tell people what they do for a living? So what do you do? Oh, I am in finance. Because nobody wants to say I work for the IRS because then they wouldn't be invited back to the party anymore. So, so that's Matthew. He takes people's money and nobody probably likes him because of that. But it's not just that Matthew is you know, working for the man and, and taking a cut of everybody's business. It's he's working for the enemy. The Romans are the ones collecting the taxes. So, so Matthew is actively supporting the Roman occupation and the subjugation of his own people. He is getting rich by taking a cut of everybody's business and then giving that money as a reward to the people who conquered Israel. And of course, he's keeping a service charge for the privilege of taking their money. And, and you know, the Romans came and they took away the people's land and they took away their freedom and forced them into perpetual poverty because now they're collecting all these taxes. And Matthew pays those people who hate and persecute the Jews. And he, and he even makes them pay with Roman coins that have Caesar on the front who is supposed to be treated as their king and their God. Which goes completely against the Jewish, you know, we've got one God. And now here come these people, no, now you've got a new God and you pay us your money. And you obey us. And you do what we say. And Matthew is working for those people. I think about it, you know, when the Nazis, but as, as, we were, as they were getting into World War II, as Hitler was getting people wound up, they started wrecking Jewish businesses and, and beating the Jews in the streets and putting people in concentration camps and then forcing them into slave labor and eventually just killing them by the millions. And all the while, they used Jews who were willing to either take money or to accept privileges in order to keep their own people in order. The, the, there were Jewish ghetto police, and you've probably heard some of that in history or watched movies and, and seen that. And so there were certain Jews who were helping the Nazis to destroy their own people. And you can imagine what, the, you know, what all the other Jews felt about these people who were turning their backs on them. And that's what Matthew was. Matthew was the ghetto police. He was the tax man for the enemy. And he was worse than the enemy. He was a traitor to his own people. So when people saw him and they were forced to give him their money, you know, like Peter would collect a bunch of fish and sell that at market, and then he'd have to pay somebody like Matthew a cut of that money. And so not only was he hated because you're taking my money, but he's hated because you're taking my money for the enemy who was, who was beating us and forcing us to do their work and treating us like slime. And so why did Jesus invite Matthew to follow him? Because Jesus didn't see what everybody else saw. Jesus didn't see the tax man and the traitor. He saw something inside Matthew's heart that gave him hope. Something that nobody else could see. Something that maybe not even Matthew had thought up until that point when he was invited. Maybe Matthew was, you know, He's doing this job for the enemy and he's starting to feel regret 
for, for what he had become a part of? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. You know, at first maybe it was it was all about the money, and it was great because now he's got you know he's rich and he's living comfortably when all his you know when everybody else in the neighborhood is getting poorer and poorer and working harder and harder. And so at first he was happy for the comfort and the freedom to do what he wanted, but all along the way he started realizing the harm that he was causing to his neighbors and. And he was starting to feel guilty about it. And he wished, you know, I wish there was some way to get out of this mess, but now I'm kind of committed. I can't stop putting, giving money to the Romans or they're going to come break my kneecaps. I have to do this job now. I'm, I'm too deep. There's no way to escape. And so he just couldn't see how to get out without getting himself or the people he cared about into trouble. I don't know. Maybe he didn't think about that at all. Maybe he was just enjoying it until Jesus came. It's It's not like he could... You know, just quit. So he had to keep collecting taxes. What else could he do? But Jesus saw something inside of Matthew that gave him hope. And so he walked up to Matthew at his tax collecting table and he gave him the opportunity to take a leap of faith. A pretty big leap too. I think this was even harder to do for Matthew than for Peter. And the other fishermen, when Jesus came to them and they were fishing by the seashore, and he said, Come and follow me. And they could either follow Jesus or they could keep their business, which was fishing and making their money and feeding their families. And, they, and that was their choice. And so it was a big leap of faith to drop their nets and their livelihood and go follow Jesus instead of making money. And so Matthew is now, Jesus is coming up and saying, you know, give up your, your wealth, give up your way of making money, but also put your life at risk because now you're going to stop giving money that the Romans are expecting you to give them. And so I, in my mind, that's kind of a big deal. And Matthew accepted the offer. He took that huge leap. He got up and he walked away from everything he knew and, and I think probably put himself in a lot of danger to follow Jesus. And, it, and, and that's the way God looks at us. He doesn't look at, at our traditions or what we look like. It doesn't matter to God what you look like or where you're from or, or any of that stuff. What matters is that inner desire, that thing in your heart that says, I want to move closer to, to, to God, to go deeper in relationship with Him. Jesus called the fisherman. He called the, the, the person who collected taxes from the fisherman. He even called Simon the Zealot. If you know about the zealots, they were kind of like the, they would have been the sworn enemy to somebody like Matthew. The zealots hated the Romans. They were like the, the, the Jewish fanatics with swords. And their mission was to, to cause as much trouble and, and damage to the Romans as they could. And, and so they did everything they could to sabotage the Roman efforts and to, to, to their rule and, and, and ability to keep the peace. You could almost think of the zealots like Robin Hood, who would steal the taxes back from Prince John. And that's kind of what the zealots wanted to do. They wanted to take what they felt was theirs back. And as a matter of fact, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, there was a war. They, they had like a guerrilla warfare between the zealots and the Romans, which is why the Romans eventually came in in strength and completely destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD because the zealots kind of had a, a fighting against them. And... And it gets even crazier. I mean, obviously Jesus went around and he picked, he had lots of crowds following him, but he picked a group of 12 people to be his inner circle. And he picked these 
wildly different people. He had fishermen, he had the tax collector, he had the zealot. Who, you know, what were their conversations like? Did they get along? You know, they obviously started out with completely different political views, and they probably changed over time. But what was that like? But then also think about Jesus called Judas Iscariot, his betrayer. And I don't know what Judas was like, you know, before Jesus called him, but he was part of his inner circle right up to the end. Right up to the night before Jesus was crucified, when, when Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and he said so, and, and Jesus broke bread with Judas. You know, he didn't he didn't like say, Get out, you're not my friend anymore. He he shared his cup with him. And so on an even deeper level, Jesus shows us through that, I think, that your social circle and your religious traditions and the face that you portray to the rest of the world doesn't mean diddly compared to where your heart is. And all that really matters is that inner desire to either grow closer or move farther away from Jesus. Because you can have somebody who totally looks the part and does everything the way everybody else does, but is the betrayer in your group. So it's not that that makes them part of the group. It's where their heart is. Do they want to move closer or do they want to move farther away from Jesus? So, and as people, you know, we love to, to organize and pigeonhole and put everybody into neat little categories. And, you know, we like to have our, you know, make sense of our world and our social connections. But to Jesus, none of that matters. And, and so Jesus says, let's go have, you know, he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and he says, okay, I'll follow you. And he says, let's go have dinner at your place tonight. And in verse 10, it says, as Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. So, the, uh, you know, you, the people that show up for dinner are the people you would expect who were Matthew's friends and acquaintances and business partners. And so obviously there's more tax collectors and the people that the kind of, the, you know, that a tax collector would hang out with. And maybe they had Roman friends and maybe they had you know, Gentiles and and. and Perhaps they you know, had prostitutes. We don't know. It doesn't say it just says sinners. We, we don't really know for sure, but there's a lot of people of ill repute hanging out at Matthew's house. And definitely not the people that you would have sitting next to you in synagogue on Sabbath day. And so does this mean Jesus approves of their behavior? That he approves of, of the, you know, all the tax collectors and sinners? No, of course not. And they surely know that because Jesus has been out in public, making it very clear the kind of life that he expects his followers to have. So they, you know, they're probably hearing about Matthew, that Matthew's had this change of heart and he's going to follow Jesus and they're probably talking about what is going on and, and what's this going to be like. And, and, and it doesn't tell us what Jesus is talking to these people about, but you can be sure he's, they understand that Jesus does not, does not approve of their lifestyle but he's still sitting there having dinner with them. But at the same time, supper at Matthew's house opens up an opportunity to take the gospel to people who need it the most. And, and, and at what other time would a bunch of tax collectors and sinners have any desire to gather around Jesus and listen to anything he has to say? Right? These are the last people in the world who would ever walk into church. And yet here Jesus has a crowd of them sitting around him that he can talk to. 
So it's kind of a neat opportunity that, that he otherwise wouldn't have. And, and now as usual, the Pharisees are keeping an eye on everything Jesus does. And, and they might just be legalistic busybodies, but I expect because of, of the stir that Jesus has been making that the religious leadership in Jerusalem has probably assigned uh, you know, their own investigative team to monitor and report on this Jesus guy. So there's always Pharisees watching him, what he's doing. And in verse 11 it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And, and this always makes me wonder exactly where are the Pharisees when they ask this? I mean, they're obviously within earshot because Jesus hears what they're saying. And, you know, are they necessarily any farther away from the tax collectors and sinners than Jesus is? I mean, they're either in the same house or the same courtyard where this is going on. Maybe they're just, you know, they're not eating the food. And so technically we're not part of the party. We're just, you know, observers rather than participants. But it's, it's just an, another interesting picture of how we can try to category, categorize people based on these surface level things that they're doing. You know, we're not with the party, but we're watching you. So Jesus hears them. And verse 12 says, when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. And of course, Jesus isn't talking about medical services here, but it's an interesting analogy he's making. There's, here's this house full of people who need spiritual renewal desperately. They're, they're lost and dead in their sins. And deep down, all these people know how bad they are and that they are far from God. And they know that they are sinners, but they've chosen to do it anyway. And, and kind of like a smoker. Every smoker knows that cigarettes are bad for you. But that nicotine, that high that it brings, and that addiction, it's, it takes work to break through that. And so even though they know it's going to get them eventually, they don't quit because of the high and the difficulty of quitting, the work that it takes. And it's kind of like the sinner. They know it's bad for them. They know it's killing them and it's separating them from God, but they don't want to stop. And, and the one who can offer real healing has somehow found a way to their dinner table. And, I, and I, I'm assuming he's talking to them about it. Does this mean that the Pharisees don't need Jesus? Well, no, not at all. But, but they're like the people uh, kind of on a different part of the spectrum who have the, their body is giving them the signs. You're sick. There's something wrong with you. You need to see a doctor, but they're ignoring it. No, I don't have time. I've got other things to do. I don't want to go see the doctor. Is this, this is not a heart attack. It's just indigestion. So that's what the Pharisees are like. I don't need to go see the doctor. I'm fine. And so verse 13, Jesus says, go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and this is a dig to the religious experts because they know this comes from, he's quoting Hosea here, where God is warning of the judgment that he's bringing against Israel because of their unfaithfulness. So that's kind of a dig at them because he's saying, listen, you're the representatives of Israel and God is against you right now. This job or the job that God gave to the religious leader, leaders, leadership of Israel, he has, you know, people who were the priests and the, you know, the judges and the, and the kings, the people who were in charge were given a job by God and they were to basically intercede for the people, the priests. You know, they made atonement for the sinners of somebody's sin. They would come and make a sacrifice and the priests would do the rituals that were needed so that person could have forgiveness. And the political rulers, the judges and the kings and such, 
They were supposed to take care of the people who needed most. God assigned them the task of taking care of the poor and the widows and the orphans and such. It was their job, the religious leadership of Israel, it was their job to show God's mercy to the people who needed it. And God charged them with that. And what are they doing instead? They're helping themselves. They're, they're getting rich. And by, by paying off the Romans with the money they're collecting at the temple to hold on to their own position and their own power, and they're no better than the tax collectors. The tax collectors are collecting money and they're giving it to the Romans. And the religious leaders are doing the exact same thing with the temple money. They're, they're the same, but they don't recognize that. So Jesus is, is kind of letting them know, I know what you're doing, but he's also demonstrating God's desire to show mercy to all who receive it. But I don't want sacrifice. I want your heart to be changed. I want mercy. Any, any sinner, regardless of who they are or where they've come from, if they are willing to repent and believe, Jesus is willing to, Jesus is willing to lead them into a new life and make them part of God's family. And, and God's kindness is available to the whole world. And he wishes everybody would turn to him. The tax collectors, the Pharisees, everybody who was willing. And, and the religious leaders say, their, their opinion is, if you go through the motions, you know, you do all the right things, you, you get your act together, you put on the right clothes, you sing the right songs, you act the way that we act, you get your life in order, then we'll let you be a part of our group. That's the view from the, the Pharisees. Jesus says, it's not about you. It's not about your group criteria. It's about the love and the grace of God and His power to change your life from the inside out. And, it, and, and He comes and He seeks the lost in the midst of our sin and our rebellion and He offers us a way out. As you know, in our worst, in our dirtiest, smelliest, stinkiest, sinfulness, wretched lives, he comes and he finds us and he says, Follow me. And you can have a new life. You can leave all this, just walk away from all the old junk, leave it behind, and come start a new life with me. I don't care where you've come from, I don't care what you've been doing, just leave it. Walk away and follow me. And that invitation is open to anybody. Not just the Pharisees that have a problem with it too. It's the John the Baptist's disciples. And, and they have some problems with Jesus. In verse 14 it says, Then John's disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? And these are the good guys. You know, it's easy to, to root against the Pharisees because they're kind of the, the bad guys in the story. But John's disciples are good people. They're serious about repentance and obeying God. And, and they have made sacrifices in their own lives and they're working hard to try to be good people and, and lead others along the right path. And remember, John, he, he, he was different. Like he was living out in the wilderness, living off the land. And, so, and he's preaching repentance to everybody. He's telling the Pharisees, you know, you've got to repent too. And so his disciples are like these desert survival monks and everybody can see, you know, they're, they're kind of God's people and they're in town and they're trying to, they, they, they're trying to learn what, you know, from what Jesus is teaching. And here he is, eating and drinking with the worst kind of people. 
partying with the tax collectors and the sinners. And so they, they say, Jesus, why aren't you taking this seriously? What are you doing? Look at all the sin and corruption in Israel's leadership and the problems that that's causing with the people. Why are you partying with these sinners instead of fasting and praying like us? In verse 15, Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. And Jesus uses this picture of a wedding. What's that about? Well, Jesus designed marriage. He was the inventor of it, right? And, and it's the beginning of a covenant relationship is what the wedding is about. And, and, it's a, you know, and marriage is a lifelong commitment of love and faithfulness. And so the wedding celebrates this wonderful union, this holy commit, you know, committed relationship that's starting off. And Jesus tells John's disciples, look, the, the, all these people who have, you know, I've been going around and preaching to all these various kinds of people, and so many of them have begun this committed relationship to God. Their lives have been changed. They've, they've found faith, and they've decided to follow and, and move towards relationship with God. And, and these are people that I've been reaching out to who have never darkened the door of the temple. And they never would. They were completely lost and forgotten, and now they're choosing to move towards God instead of away from Him like they used to. There will be a time for fasting. That's coming. But now is a time to celebrate what's happening in the lives of people who are joining God's family. And, and you know, the, the, what's, look what's happening in the, in the minds and the hearts of lost sinners. They're being transformed. And, so, and he draws a couple more pictures. In verse 16, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment because the patch will pull away from the garment and will tear and will be the worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins and otherwise the skins burst and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. Instead, they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. And so you guys kind of understand the, the, you know, if you've got a, an old worn out piece of clothing, you put a new patch on it, and then you run it through the washer and the dryer, the two materials are going to act differently, and it's going to pull apart and you're going to have problems. And the same thing with a wineskin that was a leather bag, or sometimes they would even use the, you know, like a stomach of an animal, but it was a natural fabric from an animal, and over time it would get kind of worn and dry. Well, if you are fermenting wine, it makes gases it makes carbon dioxide which puts pressure on it so it stretches out this material and if it's a fresh you know if it's new skin then it's flexible and it takes that but then you've got this old bag that now is kind of dried out and hardened over time and you put new wine in it and then if that fermentation produces the, the carbon dioxide well it stretches out that that now hardened bag and it pops and you've lost it all so Jesus is talking about these things that are not compatible, that don't go together. And he's doing something completely different than what anybody is used to. He's bucking all the traditions. He's breaking all the boundaries. He's not trying to get people to fit in with a certain category in order to form clubs and, and of similarities the way we all like to do it. He's reaching out into this motley mix of, of lowlifes and scumbags and tax collectors and sinners and smelly fishermen and business owners and uh, even Pharisees and teachers of the law, all these you know, strange mix and you know, Gentiles and Jews, everybody and anybody 
who was willing to listen to his message of God's kingdom. And he's trying to get them all to move towards God. And he's to, to turn their hearts to their Creator and to walk away from the sin and to desire a real relationship with the Lord and start living that life that is always moving closer and closer to their Creator. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, it's all about the inner heart desire. And he says, listen, don't try to get what, take what I am doing and fit it into your old categories. You can't do it. It's like putting a, a, a new cloth in an old fabric or putting new wine in an old wineskin. What I am doing does not fit with what you're used to. It won't go in your categories. It will tear the garment. It will burst the wineskins. My thoughts are above your thoughts and you can't fit them into your pigeonholes. If you want to follow me, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you've done. Leave your junk behind and come live life the way I'm calling to you. In the new kingdom life. The way. Let me show you how to love people. Let me show you how to be fishers of men. And stop looking at all the outside junk that everybody else looks at. Start looking at people's hearts. Start seeing what I see. Let me teach you that. Jesus is challenging and redefining what it means to be a community of God's people. What it means to be the church. This is not God's house. You are God's house. If your desire is to keep moving towards Jesus, then you are God's house. And everywhere you go, you take God's house with you. It's not about what you wear or the songs you sing or what political party you belong to or whether you you like the Cubs or the White Sox. There can be Christians who like the White Sox. It's true. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your life was like before, Jesus is inviting you to leave your old life behind. To just walk away from it and to start a brand new life and come and follow Him. Whoever you are. It's, a, it's to live in a covenant relationship of faith forever and learning to grow closer to Him and never stop that motion of getting closer and learning to love Him more and more and be changed by His power and His grace. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And if you want that, just tell Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You're willing to reach out to all of us, whoever we are and wherever we're from, that You're willing to give us new life. And I pray that You would. I pray that You would help us to be Your followers. Help us to see the world the way You see it, to see people the way You see them, and to love and to obey You and to, and to enjoy this connection, this relationship, and to always be moving closer to You and loving You and loving people and making this world a better place. Help us to serve you well, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.